of Ecclesiastes and chapter 5 and verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools for they consider not that they do evil. And our subject this evening is life's chief false hopes. False hopes. And what are the principal such hopes? Call them lies, if you like, because they're not true. They're statements about life that are entirely wrong. Some of them are promises about life and what it will bring you and how it will work out for you. But they are promises that will never be fulfilled outside the blessing of God. And indeed, these are statements, promises, lies, which uh, keep so many souls from seeking after God or trusting in him. They're designed and intended to bolster unbelief in God and to turn us away. Now Solomon identifies quite a number of them. Different people have uh, counted those numbers slightly differently. But 10, 11, 12 great reasons that he gives. We shall attempt to look at briefly at just three or four tonight. That's all. But the great statements, they were made in his day, they are made today. In every age, these statements are articulated everywhere and constantly. And so we look at a number of them. Solomon, he reigned from 970 to 930 BC over Israel, that is the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Solomon, son of David, great intellectual. He was a biologist, very accomplished in his botanical and zoological knowledge, even by today's standards. He was a man of letters. He was an engineer. He was an architect. He was a philosopher. And he was rich. One of the richest men in the ancient world. And he had the means, as ruler and with his riches, to indulge himself. And he set himself for much of his life on the seeking of great fulfillment. And he could spend the money, and he could exercise his talents, and he could uh, get to himself every conceivable form of cultural and less cultural entertainment and recreation. And he came to the famous conclusion, as you know, the great statement of this book, Vanity of Vanities, All is Vanity. And the word vanity in the King James translation translates a term that actually has nothing to do with pride, doesn't mean vanity in that sense. 
it translates the term for emptiness or futility. It's less elegant, but it would be more accurate to say futility of futilities, all is futility. Everything is futile. That was the conclusion of this great intellectual after a lifetime of sowing to this world and investing all his talents and powers in this world. He writes here in Ecclesiastes as an old man for those days. Ecclesiastes is very interesting. It means the preacher or the people who have been gathered for preaching. It comes from a verb, to gather. And it's debatable what it precisely means. It's the title of this book. Is Solomon saying, I have become a preacher? I'm going to talk now for the rest of my life about Almighty God. I have found him. I have renounced my waywardness and all my pursuits, and I've found the living God. I'm going to speak about him. Or is he calling himself the one gathered? It's difficult to know. I am the one who has been preached to. I've been reached for God. I have been gathered into the congregation. Does he mean I am the gatherer? or I am the gathered one. It's an old debate. It works either way, but it gives you an insight into the meaning of the word. Certainly he is an old man. Certainly he has been gathered in among the people who trust in God. And now he's going to speak of him and persuade others and speak to others. Well, here are just three or four of the reasons that he identifies for unbelief or for the rejection of God. But first, a few warnings. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. This is interesting. Keep thy foot, watch your step, we would say today. When you go to the house of God, what's the problem? Be more ready to hear, to listen, than to give the sacrifice of fools. What does he mean by the sacrifice of fools? He means don't don't join the offerings of unbelievers and sinful men. You see, in those days, in that culture, everyone went to the house of God but not all went sincerely. It was socially compulsory. Everyone went, and some took no notice and were indifferent and believed nothing and had nothing but scorn. Now their form of worship, Solomon calls the sacrifice of fools. By fools, he doesn't mean fools as in idiots, he means fools as in ignorant people. People who don't know the Lord, who've never found the Lord, they will say all sorts of things under their breath. We've all been in this position at some time. 
They will have scorn and unbelief and all kinds of reasons to ignore the things of God. Don't listen to that. Don't be like that. Don't offer the worship, which is scorn and derision of people who just don't understand. Be more ready to listen. Listen to God. Listen to his word. Weigh it. Let it sink in. What is it actually saying? So that's his first warning. And then his second, verse 2, is similar but different. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Don't be quick with your opinions. Well, I think this, I think that. I think if there was a God, he would be like this. I think if there is a God, he should have done this, or he should have done that, or he shouldn't do this, or he shouldn't do that. And this is a common tactic of thinking in all of us when we repudiate God. We judge him. We give him advice. We form our opinions about what he ought to be like and what he ought to do. Well, there's a very interesting answer to this given by Solomon. He says, be not hasty to utter anything before God. Listen to this. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Well, that seems simple enough, but what does it mean? (laughs) God is in heaven. He's spiritual, don't you know? He's all-knowing, all-seeing. He's infallible. He is the mighty God who cannot make any mistake, who cannot sin, who cannot get anything wrong. And where am I? I'm on earth. I'm an earthling. I'm down here, so limited in my mind and in my body. And I'm offering him advice. I'm telling him what he ought to be like, what he ought to have done, and what he ought to do. It's preposterous, says Solomon. Just stop and think. Before you offer an opinion about God, I don't believe because God ought to be this, ought to do that, ought not to have done such and such. Who am I to think or speak or know what God should do? I don't have his infinite perception and awareness. God is in heaven and thou upon earth. It says it all. Therefore, let thy words be few. What's the caution to us? Take care. People judge God very hastily and forget who he is and who they are. And then there's this further warning in verse 3. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. A dream, unreality, the situation, the scene that isn't real. It's just a dream. It's a figment of imagination. It's not the truth. It's not reality. Well, what produces dreams? Well, one of the things 
Solomon says, is a complexity of life and business. When everything is going crazy around us and things have got too involved and we don't know whether we're coming or going, that's a time you're very likely to dream if you're susceptible to dreams. All the kind of confusion and anxiety is still zinging away inside you, even in slumber. That'll give rise to dreams. Unreality comes through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. You've got all these opinions. This is the context about God. All these reactions, hasty with opinions and words and viewpoints. It's not good. When people are hasty with words, they usually make mistakes. They usually say silly things, foolish things. When people are frantically trying to push something away from themselves, well, that's when things get unreal. Calm down, says Solomon. Just listen to him. Just weigh what he says. Just consider the arguments of God's book. That's the only way. Be reverent, be careful, be humble when approaching spiritual things. So the opening verses are a kind of bath for us. Just steady up our attitude. And then, uh, well, I could go to verse 4 and so on, but I'm going to go down for the sake of time to uh, uh, verse 8. I'd start there. And in verse 8 we read, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. So here's the first false statement which is being countered. And the false statement is this. And you hear it all the time. People are good. People are intrinsically good. Everybody's saying it today. People are good. Well, here's the problem, you see. The book of God, the scripture, says the opposite. People are bad. People are depraved. People are corrupt. Mankind is fallen, has fallen from communion with God. Right at the beginning of the human race. It is a fallen race. Now that's the message of the Bible. That is the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament together. That is the message of Christ, that this is a fallen human race. But nowadays, people hate that. And people from simpletons to scholars say, no, people are good at heart. They are intrinsically good. That's what's implied here in the response of Solomon. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. 
Don't marvel at that. Don't be taken aback. Don't be astonished. Don't be surprised. That's how it is. That's the trouble. That's the human race. It is fallen. Now, when we say that people are depraved, it does not mean that everybody is 100% bad. God has seen to it that there are values just about preserved in the human race. And among all human beings, almost, there is a capacity for kindness. There is a capacity for love. There is often, if not always, a capacity for truth. There is a capacity for many good things and good deeds. So depravity of the human race doesn't mean that everyone is 100% corrupted. But what it does mean is this, that everyone is tainted. And there is corruption in every part of our being. There's corruption in the mind. You think bad thoughts as well as good thoughts. And sometimes you think nearly all bad thoughts. Corruption in the heart, the affections. You love good things. You also love some very bad things. And often unclean things. And often there is lust. It's in the heart as well as in the intellect, in the mind. And then what about the other department of your being? Your will. Your volitional faculty that decides what to do. Well, that's very corrupt at times. Sometimes it's in the pocket of the feelings and sinful feelings. Sometimes it's in the pocket of the mind and sinful plans. So that's no good. The will won't tell the mind when to straighten out. It won't tell the heart when to straighten out. It'll buckle and it'll do their bidding. In all the departments of our being, there is corruption. <clears throat> you see it throughout the human race. The human race, in its advanced technology, devises a way of producing energy and abundance from an atom. But it's the human race. It's been given the brains to be smart enough to do something productive and positive. But the corruption there means that the very same thing will be harnessed for mass destruction. That's the human race. Every good it does, there's a corrupt side. There's a possibility of evil. And you can be sure it'll be employed in that way too. So we're depraved. It's predictable. It's inevitable. It's what we do. It's how we are. So Solomon says, if you see oppression 
and violent perverting of judgment and justice. Marvel not at the matter. It's just what you should expect because we need the intervention of God and we need his pardon and his love and we need him to rebuild our lives and we need him to help us in the battle against sin and we need him to purify us as we go through life and fit us, prepare us for heaven. So it's a lie. People are good at heart. I don't have to disprove it to you. You can see for yourself. Why look at the history of the world? What's uppermost in the history of the world? Wars, conquest, aggression, greed, violence, genocide, cruelty. Dear friends, it's everywhere. We must be mad to fall for the lie People are intrinsically good. Then you look at ourselves as individuals. And if we're honest with ourselves, I am corrupt before God. I need his mercy and forgiveness. I need a new life. The depravity of the human race, that people are intrinsically good, is a crazy falsehood and yet it keeps millions away from God well I must hurry look at the second one it's also in verse 8 where Solomon says for he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they now that's a mysterious statement and sometimes people don't know what to make of it he that is higher than the highest That's God. And yet the statement goes on to suggest there's one even higher than that. And there be higher than they. But it means something like this. He that is higher than the highest sees all the evil and the wrong. And he will judge. And he is infinitely high and infinitely just. That's the idea in the verse. But the second lie is there is no day of judgment. There is nothing to fear. There is no judgment of human souls. That's the contention. Well, of course there is, friends. On what authority do I say, of course there is? If you say there is no day of judgment, who's your authority? Who said that, that I must respect? Where does that judgment come from? What is the evidence? There is none. It's just a statement. It has no support. It has no authority whatsoever. Then what about my statement? There is a day of judgment. What is the authority? The word of God, the book of God, the revelation of God to us tells us from cover to cover he will hold us to account. But there is a little bit more, or not more, but additional authority because it's kind of in everybody. It is even a God-given instinct that there is a day of judgment. 
That's where the fear of death comes from. It's not just oblivion that people fear. It's something deeper. It's something more profound that makes death so fearsome. There is an instinct for judgment. And you can see this and the evidence for this in human behavior. The great longing for justice. Some poor family has been devastated because a family member has been murdered. What a terrible thing and an awful experience. And there's a great desire for justice. And you'll hear people say that they can't have peace. The great word these days is closure until there's justice. And it's all part of this instinct working out in people that there is judgment, that there must be justice. It's buried in the human constitution. But more authoritatively, it's in the Bible. It's in the word of God. There is a day of judgment. And Solomon is really answering this. He that is higher than the highest regardeth and sees. I could talk a little more about this, but I will need to go on. Justice. False statement number two. False statement number three is down here in verse nine. I must just explain this to you. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. False statement number three is this. Life is viable without God. You don't need God. Life can be fulfilling and happy and you can accomplish your objectives and do well without God. You've no need of him. Therefore, you can ignore him. And the answer to that is in this ninth verse. The prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Life is not viable without God at all. Yes, it is, they say. You can do all you need to without him. No, you can't. Even the king is served by the field. Put it this way. Solomon's a man of letters. And this is effectively what he's saying. He's brought us down to the field. Why? Why the field? The basic providing unit of life ultimately is the field. The king, he's in a palace. He's got means beyond our comprehension. He's got everything he wants. He is dependent upon the dirt of the field. He likes to think he lives above the field, perhaps. His palace could be paved in gold. Certainly marble. But no, he's dependent on the dirt of the field. Everyone is, ultimately, everyone. 
Everything comes from the field. Without that, we cannot survive. And this is Solomon's answer. Life is not viable without that dirty field. Let's suppose we're royals and kings, tilled by menial workers, tilled and ploughed and harvested by lowly people, peasants. And yet, king, you're completely dependent upon it, almost as though you're eating the dirt. And the message is this. You're all dependent upon the Lord. Don't think life is viable without him. You're completely dependent upon him. Let me tell you a few things you depend on God for without even knowing it. Apart from the fact you depend upon him for air, for energy, and food, and anything, ultimately it's all from the creative work of God. You are a complete dependent upon God, even if you don't believe in him. You're dependent on his patience and his long-suffering towards you. Why do you think he doesn't obliterate you for your unbelief? Why do you think he doesn't have a way with you? His long-suffering and his patience, your every breath depends upon the kindness of God as well as his provisions. Your dependence upon God for what used to be called the life force, the inexplicable, unidentifiable, powerful force that keeps all life and biology going, emanates from God. You're dependent upon him for all your gifts and powers, anything that you may possess. But you're dependent upon him for more. You really need him for an eternal context for your life. If you've never found the Lord, how much you need him to set your life in the context of eternity. To know the real purpose of life and where you're going, you depend upon him. You depend upon him for a friend, for a relationship, for one to uphold you and strengthen you, and change you, and help you. You depend upon him for spiritual life. You need to come to him. You'll be dependent upon him for forgiveness and for new life. That's the meaning of this verse. The prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Even a king is lost without God. And dear friends, may I say it, even a prince is lost without God. And we see it played out before us. Even a prince, without a worldview, without a hold on God, will always be vulnerable to the knocks and the injustices of life. 
and we'll never be able to rise above them and neither will you or me without God, without him. That's the meaning. It's a lie to say that life is viable without God. We need him for everything. I wish I could do more, but my time is up. One false statement after another. I must conclude by uh, perhaps reading down to verse 18. Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labour that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. And then in verse 19, the end of the verse, this is the gift of God. That's what you need to make life viable. The gift of God, the gift of salvation, the gift of free pardon, the gift of new life, the gift of eternal life. You need the gift of God, says Solomon. True happiness and true contentment in life only comes from the gift of God, salvation given to you because you repent of your sins, because you trust in Christ who suffered and died for sin on behalf of all who would be saved, because you yield your life to him and he gives you the gift of life and communion with himself. That's what this is all about. Friends, I've dealt on the negatives. Don't believe the lies. And the false promises, you need the Lord and you need the salvation which only he can give. Let's pray together. Lord, look upon us all and help us this night. Grant, O God, that there may be those among us who find the loving kindness of Christ and all that he's purchased for us. Look upon us all and help us now and draw us to thyself. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.